Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 127. On today's show, we talk about the destructive legacy of the Canadian residential school system. Let's dig a little deeper. All right, welcome to the show, everybody. We don't have a news episode today. No, but the episode was kicked off by a news article. It kind of sent me down a rabbit hole of research and learning about something that I wasn't super familiar with. That would be the Canadian residential school system. Yeah. Let's talk about the article real quick. Just mention what sort of kicked this off for us. Yeah. Yeah. So I saw an article that came out from the BBC called Why Canada is Mourning the Deaths of 215 Children. Yeah. And of course, a title like that is going to grab your attention immediately. It always does. And as I started reading it, I realized it was a, not an archaeological survey, but a GPR survey Mm -hmm. that was done of a cemetery that was attached to one of these Canadian residential schools. Ground penetrating radar. Yes. Yeah. So I guess still archaeology. They just have not excavated anything yet. So that's the article that kicked this off. And I was like, what in the world? Like I had heard of Canadian residential schools but I didn't know a lot about them. How about you? Had you ever heard about that or learned anything about it? I mean, I didn't know anything about Canadian ones, but I've heard plenty about U.S. ones. Yeah. There's, a, there's one in Reno. Yeah. And it, it's called the, oh, what is it called? It's called the Something Indian School, and it's a historic building now. Okay. And I don't know what they're doing with it, but I, I saw something on it a few years ago in Reno. So, uh-huh. yeah, they're definitely in a lot of places where you have, well, Native Americans. Yeah. And was the one in Reno, do you... Remember, was it meant for school children, like to teach school age native children? Yes, it was exactly what okay. we're going to talk about. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that does make sense because when I was researching the system and why it started, what happened, the origins, all that stuff, it definitely had some origins in the United States. Yeah. And that obviously grabbed my attention immediately because I'm like, well, I never learned about that in school. You learned about the Trail of Tears, right? Like, of course they teach you about that. They have to at this point. I don't know if I learned about that. Well, really? I grew up in Washington State. We learned about the Indians up there. Well, you know what? There are so (laughs) many holes in the education of the children of this country and Canada, Mm -hmm. too, apparently. And it's just it's just such a sad state of affairs that we just don't know what our ancestors did Mm -hmm. to the native peoples of this country. So, okay. So let's start with how Canada got to the place that it, it got to. So basically the Canadian residential schools were created with the lofty goal of educating indigenous children. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and call bullshit on that immediately <laughs> because that was not their actual goal. Their actual goal 
was to indoctrinate them into the Euro-Canadian and Christian way of living, assimilating them into mainstream white society. That was the goal. But but let's talk about society at the time, because to them, that is education. Right. Not, they, they, yeah. they were certainly approaching this from a point of view that they felt was correct and proper and that they were helping the heathen natives of the country. They right. they certainly felt that way. We know in hindsight that that is wrong. But what we cannot excuse here is the treatment of the people who went through the system. Anyway, moving forward, they were kind of trying to figure out how to bring the native cultures into white society. Like I said, that was definitely the ultimate goal here. And so they started opening these schools in the 1800s. I saw as early as like the 1820s, but I think they started for real opening like in the 1880s. And they actually sent a guy to the United States to observe the schools (laughs) here in the United States. So that totally makes sense what you were saying about the one in Reno. They weren't as widespread here as it became in Canada, but they were definitely here. And I don't think they lasted as long. It was just a different thing. It just didn't take off here the way it did in Canada. But the the idea started from coming to observe schools here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And there's a really terrible paper that was written. It's called the 1879 Report on Industrial Schools for Indians and Half-Breeds. And I actually found the original copy of that paper written by a lovely human, not called Nicholas Flood Davin. And he was the one who was sent to the United States to review these schools and see how they could implement them in Canada. So that's how it started. 1880s, these schools start opening, but they weren't as attended until the 1920s because mm-hmm. in 1920s something called the Indian Act was passed and what the Indian Act did in Canada was it required children to attend these schools mm. and Native American children well Na- First Nations children First Nations children yeah from what I researched that's the preferred term for all the different Native groups of, up there is First Nations yeah so, that's Canadian yeah, term yeah. for that yeah so, been for a while yeah so anyway, they when they required these children to attend these schools with the purpose of assimilating them into white culture, they didn't build enough of them. There were not enough of them to accommodate all of the Native children, the First Nations children in Canada. So, And they weren't necessarily located near the tribes and the reservations that their parents lived on, the, their culture and their families lived on. Mm-hmm. So what happened is, is that, well... The government was like, too bad. You you still have to go. So we'll provide a place for you to send your kids where they can live. And that's yeah. how the term residential came about. Throughout this, because you did all the research on this one. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate only a little bit here. But obviously what they did was wrong uh, in hindsight, right? And I think a lot of people even back then probably would have agreed had they knew what was going on, would have said it was wrong. Because you had a quote here, you know, one of the goals was to kill the Indian in the child, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, and that was a pretty famous quote that came from an American, yeah. actually. I can't remember who. But yeah, it, it, the express purpose was to. Right. But if you look at conquering societies through time, I mean, Rome did this for hundreds of years. The Mongols did this. Lots of people did this. And they assimilated cultures into their community. And 
this was a misguided attempt to do that because they wanted to, yes, kill the Indians, so to speak, but they wanted to have them speak English, what they thought was the civilized language of society. So they wanted to bring them into the civilized language of society. They wanted to teach them about their God, which they thought was the only God, the only true God. The Indians had heathen gods, you know, just like other cultures through time have had those things. Okay, I hear what you're saying, but I don't really think that we can excuse it or justify it. I'm not doing that at all. I'm talking about the bias of time. That perspective, of course, is where they were coming from. But it's the same perspective that all conquerors conquerors have come from, and right. I, it's not that doesn't make it okay. It's it's not making it okay at all. It's obviously a terrible, terrible thing. But you can't look at the people who did this as truly evil people through the lens of time and the lens of what they were. They were perfectly in keeping with who they should be. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that because the First Nations and Native people of Canada were, by all accounts, living fairly peacefully and mostly separately from the white people, especially in Canada and up in the northern areas where it's less populated and the, the groups were living mostly apart from each other. So I don't really understand why the white quote-unquote conquerors who had already come in and taken over the land also needed to destroy the culture of the people that were there except from a just a dominant we must control every aspect of every person that lives in this country and i just but that's but that's what it is right you have a quote here that says schools were mostly run by major christian churches anglican presbyterian united and roman catholic catholic 70 percent of them were catholic It is one of the primary edicts of the Catholic Church to subsume everyone on the planet into Catholicism. That is like what you're charged with as a Catholic is to, you know, preach and bring your friends and your neighbors and all those people into Catholicism. That's basically all Christianity. It's basically all Christianity. You're totally right. So that is just totally keeping in line with the faith of today. Yeah. And the faith of a thousand years ago. Well, and and I think that that's why these schools were widely accepted at the time and why they became so I don't know if popular is the right word but the the movement was popular mm-hmm. because most people were Christian and they did see it as a way to teach the quote unquote heathens about Christianity and bring them into the, the yeah. proper religion so that's what they were doing and that is why the system was so successful too because it was a partnership it was government funded right so all these schools were, were built with government money but they were run by the churches Mm -hmm. so most of them there were some that were more church heavy and some that were less like the ones that were more focused on uh, industrial type of work like farming and stuff like that sure those were less religion but anyway those were more like workhouses actually which is just a whole different awful thing so this partnership between the government with the money and the churches with the indoctrination was this really like powerful combination that just it meant that the the first nations groups just really had no chance and everybody yeah. who wasn't native thought that what they were doing was great at first mm-hmm. at first so that that's the origins right the height of the school attendance like i said was in the the 20s and 30s and that's because of the indian act but Sometime in the 50s, some parts of the Indian Act, including the requirement for children to go to these residential schools, was repealed because they mm-hmm. realized that it was... I, I'm not sure what the Canadian Constitution is or if they even call it the Constitution, Constitution, honestly. But whatever it is, they decided it was not 
okay, it was unconstitutional. So well, the sixties in Canada, much like the sixties in the United States, were a time of yeah. awakening for yeah. people of a new generation. Yeah. And they're going Wait, what? Wait, what are you doing with these kids? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's put a stop to that right now. Yeah, and and it's good that that happened, but it also set off a whole other series of issues. We're not going to get into this in this podcast because that's not really what this is about, but there's a whole thing called the 60s scoop, which happened. Have you ever heard of that? No. So the only reason I knew anything about this is because of this podcast that I listened to about two-ish years ago called Finding Cleo. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend it to anybody who likes true crime <laughs> and also learning about these uh, a broken social system. So basically, it was the illegal removal of indigenous children from their families by foster workers who had no right to take these kids away. They would manufacture any kind of small reason to remove them from their indigenous homes and place them with white families. And it was really the, the, the residential schools were falling out of favor. There was some really bad stuff that was going on in those and that was coming to light in the public. So the residential schools were starting to, to close and that part of the, the movement to, you know, destroy indigenous culture it moved to this instead. Well, it goes back to a quote you have that I, I don't think you said by Davin, the guy who wrote that crazy oh, paper. Oh, yeah. If anything is to be done with the Indian, we must catch him very young. The children must be kept constantly within the circle of civilized conditions. Now, yeah. again, thinking purely anthropologically, that's of course true, right? Anytime you take a child and you put it with somebody that is not their natural parents, that child is going to grow up very much like the people that raised it. It's the whole nature versus nurture thing. Nurture has a, a strong, strong component in who you become based on that. There's a lot of natural tendencies that you're going to have, of course, based on just your DNA and your, you know, things like that. But how you grow up, people people definitely know that how you grow up influences how you become a human, you know, what, what kind of adult you're going to be. Oh, for sure. So they're not wrong. Grab them while they're young. You probably are going to kill the Indian inside of them, which is why very, you know, we lose indigenous languages, you know, every year. And yeah. And we'll, we'll get more into that in the next segment, but yeah, I mean, that was definitely the goal was to grab them while they were young and try Mm -hmm. to indoctrinate them into a new, a new culture. It's just that it was so misguided the way they went about sure. it. They weren't putting them with like loving families that were going to teach them the quote unquote Christian way. They were just piling a bunch of children into a school together from different cultures. They weren't necessarily mm-hmm. from the same First Nations group, you know, so yeah. there's all from different cultures. And yeah, I just don't think that it it did not have the effect that they expected it to. Right. And then the 60s scoop, it was the same thing but different they were placing them with families in some cases you know the foster care system isn't great in canada either but it also tore families apart and they they knew each other they knew who they were they knew that they had a family mm-hmm. because they couldn't they didn't take them when they were babies these were these were older kids that were taken in a lot of in a lot of cases so and it was completely done illegally so anyway i encourage people to go listen to the finding cleo podcast cuz it it was a very interesting true crime story about a a girl who was part of the 60s scoop and then she ended up well actually she disappeared and nobody knows what happened to her but there's <laughs> theories and <laughs> um and you learn about the canadian residential school system as well as the 60s scoop in that podcast so yeah. I, I recommend it all right well i think with that we will take a break and come back on the other side here and and keep talking about this horrific ordeal in canada you just think of canadians as being super nice but, i know, you know. <laughs> 
Anyway, back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code TAS. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to The Archaeology Show, episode 127. So in segment two, I thought we would talk about the education, the living conditions, and like what the actual experience would have been like for these Native children who were sent to the residential schools. So when when kids would have been sent to the school, the very first thing that would have happened is that the boys and the girls were separated. And they did that because they were teaching them sort of gender-specific jobs, right? The boys would have been taught carpentry, tinsmithing, farming, basically anything that was like a blue job, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was basically like free labor for the schools, for keeping up the grounds, for building maintenance, for all the things that they needed to do to keep the school going. They would use the boys for like free labor, but under the guise of teaching them life skills. And I'm, I I suppose they were life skills. They were taught how to do these things, which would have potentially been useful later on. I mean, wax on, wax off. <laughs> right. And so while the boys were doing that, the girls were learning domestic work, like you would expect, sewing, laundry, cooking, cleaning. And then they were the the free labor for the domestic requirements of a large school full of children. I don't think a whole lot's changed with boys and girls these days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But these guys were forced into it. They were. And I mean, it does sound like they learned some like good life skills. But the thing was, is that they weren't paid for their labor. And they also weren't given a choice I guess Mm -hmm. so and as a result of the fact that they were doing so much work while they were in school most of these children only ended up with like a fifth grade ish average education level by the time they quote-unquote graduated and then were kicked out of the school and it was a pretty abrupt process kind of like how I hear foster care goes for Mm -hmm. kids like when they turn 18 like you are out, like out the door. And it was the same thing with these residential schools is that they would be they would be out the door when they were 18. It's interesting that they were out the door when they were 18 because was that just like 
Uh, is that legal adulthood in uh, Canada? I, I mean, I guess it is. Yeah, yeah. I believe so. It it is interesting though because like you, they don't kick you out of high school when you're 18. You know, I mean, if you keep going, yeah. <laughs> but the point is, the whole point of these schools was to make them less Indian and make them more in keeping with white society. Why wouldn't they try to get them a job and you yeah. know do some other things to to keep it going? Because if, if you're just going to come out bitter and uneducated at 18 years old, you're probably going to go home. Yeah, and I read stories about how people felt like not only were they disconnected from this quote unquote white good world that they were meant to become a part of, but they also felt disconnected from their their indigenous cultures because they hadn't spent the last 10 or 15 years or however long with them so Mm -hmm. it kind of put them in this weird like middle zone of being part of both things but belonging to neither of them yeah so i mean that just reminds me you know there's a lot of african-americans that feel like that all the time and i'm sure native americans today and first nations people today i never forget a friend that I had when I was in the Navy. We all went by last names. <laughs> I literally have no idea what his first name is. Right. But he was like 18, 19, 20, whatever he was when we were on the ship. And he was constantly depressed. And he told me one night as we were sitting at three o'clock in the morning in the Mediterranean, just watching the water, he was like, you know, I don't feel like I have any friends. He's He was half black. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think his dad was black and his mom was white. And he's just like, Black people think I'm white and white people think yeah, I'm black. Yeah, I've heard that. I've yeah. heard a lot of stories about people who are you know, mixed race like that, not feeling a part of either thing. Mm-hmm. And while these children were not mixed, well, some of them were probably mixed. It was probably, uh, you know, some that, mixed, some full. Time, yeah. yeah, but but the same thing. Like, they just sort of didn't really feel a part of anything. And mm-hmm. the schools, too, it wasn't, they didn't just separate them by gender. They they It was like a campaign to separate these children from their families and they did it to the point where they separated siblings as well when you first got to the school even siblings of the same gender were Mm -hmm. separated so that you couldn't interact with each other you weren't allowed to speak in your native language at all you were only allowed to speak in english or french so that was another tactic you know to stop stop kids who knew each other from home basically from maintaining that cultural connection by talking in their native language and they also basically homogenized the student population by cutting their hair and making them wear uniforms. Mm. And I've been through that. Well, yeah. I mean, I know a part of me is like, well, I mean, school uniforms, like that's actually kind of a good thing. But I was thinking of boot camp. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But this was more from a like the cutting the hair part was if hair was part of any kind of like native, not costume, but like. Identity. Yeah, their native identity. They they took that away from them. This is 100% like boot camp. The whole point of boot camp in the military is to strip down any sense of identity that you have mm-hmm. and make it so you're susceptible to orders and learning new things. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Yeah. Everybody's equalized. Yeah. And I, I mean, this is that on a massive, horrible scale. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely what they were trying to do with yeah. these kids. And of course, as you might expect, you end up with a lot of various forms of abuse. And this is where we're kind of going to eventually get to the archaeology story that that <laughs> started off this whole conversation. But 
in addition to, I hate to say typical abuse, but abuse that you might expect to see in an environment like this, the emotional and the psychological abuse. I mean, I've heard stories about people who went to Catholic school, (laughs) like in the 60s. (laughs) Sorry, mom. Hope you're not listening to this anyway. (laughs) But I, you know, they, they weren't the most forgiving of places for, for kids. So I'm sure that there was that sort of abuse, if you want to call it that, that happened. But there was also like some pretty severe physical abuse that there's actual records of and, mm-hmm. and accounts, actual like first person accounts of yeah. like beatings, being shackled to bed because you didn't do what you were supposed to do. I mean, yeah. shackling a child to bed. Oh, my God. If they were caught speaking in their native language, in some cases, they had pins stuck through their tongue. I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds horrific to do to a kid. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of that very strong punishment. I read one story from a guy who had like horrible bruises and welts across his fingers from getting wrapped by the nuns Jeez. for, for speaking in his native language. And to this day, you know, this was in the forties or fifties that it happened to him. And to this day, he still has like pain in his hands from, from that time. So this all sounds like pretty typical Catholic education in the time. Right. I don't know about yeah. now, but back then, I mean, everybody has those stories, like you said, it you know, it was be, just, it was just yeah. more extreme here because they were, they were so much more, I guess, unforgiving of the native children. I think so. Yeah. 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 There are some reports of sexual abuse happening although i didn't read a lot about that and it doesn't sound like that was as common of a problem or it's just not well, talked about so yeah, because it's a pretty common problem now it is it is yeah oh do you know what is crazy about this mm. and there is a truth and reconciliation commission that mm. was put together in the early 2000s to sort of explore this whole residential school thing yeah and in the, the findings, and we'll link to a couple of the reports that they put together, but the findings are basically that the conditions were pretty horrific for these children. You know, it, the they were overcrowded. They were underfunded. They didn't have enough food. They didn't have good health care, mm-hmm. poor sanitation, all of the things. I mean, the, it's sounding a little concentration campy to me. Yeah. Not campy, but camp Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And... All of that means that the death rates at these schools were much higher Mm -hmm. than they were at other places. So we'll get into more about that in the next segment. But basically, these schools created an environment where children were not treated the way children should be treated. Yeah. And for the ones that did get hurt, they probably didn't have the funds for medical treatment. Right, right. I mean, a lot of them were attached to hospitals, but I think because of the way that the schools were overcrowded, like, like in the 1918 influenza just ravaged some of the schools because they were all in such close quarters and and yeah, yeah, so they, yeah, the, the conditions were very, very bad as, as you might expect in that case. They also had really poor facilities. Like I read a couple in a couple places that, in the decade of the 1940s, like 10 of the schools burned down. Jeez. 10 of them. That's a lot of schools to burn down during one like decade time mm-hmm. period. And it was just because they were poor facilities that were not well maintained. And 
They didn't say anything about any deaths in these fires, so I don't know if they were empty when that happened or... Oh, I'm sure it just wasn't reported. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. So so anyway, yeah, the living conditions were not great. They did not receive really amazing educations, obviously, mm-hmm. and there was no support after they left the schools either. So it really had a, a long-lasting effect on the entire Native population of Canada. And like I was saying about the... The Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they have been putting a lot of time and effort into figuring out exactly what went on at these schools and how many children died, Mm. what the death rates were and stuff like that. And there's a a couple of the First Nations groups are throwing their weight and their time and their money behind finding out what happened here, too, which is why we're learning more about, you know, about these schools. So, Yeah. yeah, but like. Why don't we take a break and then we will come back and talk more about what archaeology, finally some archaeology, (laughs) can tell us about these schools. Back in a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our tea Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. All right, welcome back to the Archaeology Show, where... We're going to finally talk about archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And thanks to everybody for sticking with us for this one. I just felt it was so important to not just talk about the archaeology story that led us to this topic, but also the history and the politics and the social stuff behind the schools. Well, archaeology is all about creating a backstory. Yeah. And we just kind of gave the backstory first. Yeah. Yeah. We had to. <laughs> and there, there is so much more to know about these schools and not only things that are already known that you can go and find out yourself. We'll link to all the the sources that we found in the show notes, obviously, but there's just so much more to find out about it uh, Mm -hmm. out there. There's a couple books that have been written by survivors, survivors. That's not the right word. No, by, well, let's just go with survivors, survivors of the residential school system. So back to what life was like in these schools for the kids. Like I was talking about before the break, terrible conditions, And what that led to was a higher rate of death amongst children at these schools as compared to other children of their same age group. That weren't in these schools. That weren't in these schools. Yeah. Yeah. So in the first number I saw was that in 1907, it was estimated that 24% of previously healthy children before they went to the schools 
were dying once they got to the schools. It's a kind of a weird statistic, and it was hard for me to wrap my brain around. But what I think they're saying is that these kids would be fine at home, and then they got to the school, and and 24% of them were not making it. I wonder how they knew how healthy way they were before they got in. Did they give them some sort of exam to start? Cause Maybe, yeah. Because a lot of these rural Native or First Nations communities, I mean, they themselves probably didn't have that great of health care and monitoring. No, but they but, also weren't exposed to, like, the diseases. Well, yeah, for sure. That they got yeah. exposed to as soon as they entered these schools. Yeah. From everything I saw, it's disease was the number one killer of the it children in these schools. Yeah. Yep. So another thing that the schools would do well, okay, there's first of all, there's terrible records for all these schools. A lot of them burnt down or burnt up in fires when the schools burnt down. Mm-hmm. And th- it was just poor record keeping all the way around. So we don't have a lot of good actual numbers for for kids that died or were sick or any of that kind of stuff. We're mostly just going on like anecdotal reports and the mm-hmm. occasional scraps of records that we have here and there. Yeah. One thing that is pointed out a lot is that when kids were ill or they seemed close to death, a lot of the times the schools would just like send them on home. Like, nope, we don't want responsibility for that. (laughs) Go on home, die with your family. Yeah. So there's probably a lot more deaths that can be attributed to being in these schools that we'll never know because they died by the time they got home, not at the schools. Mm -hmm. So all in total this is from the Truth and Reconciliation Com- Commission. In 2015, they estimated that probably around 6,000 children died at the schools. And they've got definite numbers on 4,100. And I, I'm going to go with skimmed. <laughs> I skimmed a whole report showing how they justified these numbers. And it really is truly through piecing together spotty records from both the schools and from the the First Nations people themselves. So, Did you see any numbers on how many children during the same time period actually went through these schools? Like, um, I did. about that. In the tens of thousands, but I, I'm not sure yeah. how many exactly. Okay. I, I think they don't have a good handle on that number either. Mm-hmm. So this was the, the number about death rate that stuck out to me the most. In 1945, it was estimated that the death rate for children at residential schools was five times higher than other mm. kids at other Canadian schools. Yeah. Five times higher. That's it's crazy. just insane. And then in 1960, with the decline of these schools, it was still two times higher. So Mm -hmm. getting better, but not great. Right. Okay. So this brings us to the archaeology of it all. (laughs) We're here. So like I mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast, the remains of 215 children have been found near the city of Kamloops in southern British Columbia. And all of these were students of the Kamloops Indian Residential School. Now, they found these children using GPR. So actually, I guess I don't even know how they know that they're all children. I think they're making the assumption that because this cemetery is associated with the school and only the school, that the only people that would be buried there would be children. And size, too, probably. Yeah, depending on the way the GPR returns are working and in British Columbia, there's a lot of good GPR soil up there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cause GPR works really well in certain kinds of conditions and mm-hmm. less well in other conditions. They can probably tell the size of the bodies. Oh, okay. Well that, that explains the thing. Cause I did see that they, 
they think that they have like some children as young as the age of three. Yeah. And I was like, how could they know that from GPR? But it must be size, right? Well, yeah, because GPR doesn't just show you some blob. I mean, mm-hmm. it kind of does, but blobs have sizes. Right. You know, so right. if they were born, if they were buried in coffins, that mm-hmm. too. Now, if they were buried in coffins, you know, when it's a family coffin, it's usually one that's built for the person that died mm-hmm. or, you know, their standard sizes. So... I don't know. That could be a little bit nebulous because they, they more than likely didn't have custom coffins for these kids. Probably and not. probably had all one size. Probably not. So like, you know, somebody really young would have been buried in the same size of coffin. Yeah. You know? But uh, that's a good point. But I don't know. I'm literally guessing. Yeah. On that. We're, we're speculating. Everybody's yeah. speculating right now because but, the official report is not coming out until later this month, close to the end of the month, they said. But so. also they did this GPR study at this Kamloops Indian Residential School. Yeah. So they wouldn't have buried the teachers there. Probably not. Yeah. yeah. They would have that's, buried the, the students. Yeah. That's why it seems pretty clear yeah. that they are, they must be children. Right. There's no other reason. There could be a random adult mixed in here and there who had nowhere else to be buried, maybe. But it's just not likely. It's not likely. Yeah. yeah. And of course, they don't know how most of these kids died, but they do know who at least 50 of them are. Mm. And it's unclear whether that's because they actually had marked graves, so they have names and dates and things on mm. them, or if it's because of the records that were left behind by the school told them who 50 of, of the graves are. Either way, 50 is not a lot of when you're looking at 215, you yeah. know? So they definitely have a lot more work to do, probably by sorting through historical records to figure out who the remaining what is that, 165 mm-hmm. graves are. Another thing I read about when, when all of these, when, when the Canadian residential system was coming to light, there was a, a native student at, I think, Simon Fraser University mm-hmm. who did some excavations at a residential school. And she just wanted to like see what life was like there for, for the kids. And... It just it it the picture that was painted by the archaeology that she did. This is about fifteen years ago that she did her master's degree. Yeah. But the picture that was painted was basically exactly as we've been describing. It was a very sterile and limited life that was led by these children, and mm-hmm. it was clear that they didn't have a lot of frills or extra anything. It was. I don't think it was fun. It was not fun. I can't imagine it was. No. I mean, kids of a certain age make anything fun, but that's no excuse. You know, they, as they get older and they start realizing, you know, mm-hmm. what they are and where they're at and, you know, what's going on there. Yeah. Couldn't have been entertaining. Yeah. So I think that there's some some big questions and things to tackle here with this because, well, first of all, like I mentioned, all the records are a huge mess. And not only the records of the people that were there, but just the records about the school them- schools themselves. Like, a lot of times they would move the school, but keep the name. Mm. And then the new location, like, they they would sort of just, like, lose track of where the old location was. What? Yeah, like, it was just sort of lost to time. Like, there might have mm. been a school in the late 1800s that was moved somewhere in the early 1900s and like nobody even knows where it was in the 1800s Mm. anymore. So it's going to be really hard to find all of these potential cemeteries and schools for excavation purposes. But it does seem like there, that a lot of people in Canada, including many of the first nations tribes want to put the effort and the time into doing this. Seems like this is a point where some good historical research could come. Not not only historical research, but 
archaeological record searches could come into play because the way you just said it is, well, now we know these schools existed and we know they moved, so we need to find out where they were so we can see if there's any unmarked cemeteries mm-hmm. there. But have there been any excavations where something was encountered that they couldn't explain where did all these bodies come from? And you just kind of match yeah. up that thing that happened. You know, they found this excavation. We found all these things. Mm-hmm. Match that up with some historical records to see if, you know, mm-hmm. we could do that. Of course, if you found, I have to imagine if you found a whole bunch of like child burials that wasn't a family plot and some, yeah. sort, of, some sort of chaos happened. You got to start wondering, is this a school of some yeah, sort? Yeah, you, you would think so. And then what kind so. of school it is, mm-hmm. you know, because you can't, contrary to what people think, you can't actually tell somebody's Native American by looking at their bones. No, you definitely <laughs> cannot. Maybe if they were buried with some sort of clothing, but they stripped right. them of all identity. They did. There would be no so, way to know these kids were Native. None at all. None yeah. at all. So without their personal effects and belongings that, you know, would have said what kind of, you know, what, what, who they belong to or something like mm-hmm. that. But like we said, they took all that away yeah. and, and made everything the same. I mean, this would have just been any regular old children's cemetery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the other... The other thing that or question that comes to mind, and this is from my experience in the United States, obviously, but most native tribes here do not want remains dug up mm. ever, yeah. ever, 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 if it can be helped. Right. So I I don't know what it's like in Canada if the First Nations groups have different ideas on this, but I can't imagine they want anybody digging up these bodies mm, if, they, if they can find a cemetery. So we're going to be relying on things like GPR to figure out number number and size i guess for you know lack of a better word on figuring that, out that is a really interesting question because when like you said we encounter that a lot in the united states where you know they want the remains left as it yeah. is but when the when the wound so to speak is so fresh mm-hmm. and there's living you know descendants that were either possibly siblings or mm-hmm. you know or even parents in some cases that are still alive yeah I wonder if if they're honestly the influence of 20th century thinking is come is taking over and they're like I will I want to know where my child was. Yeah, maybe. Not, don't disturb their burial. I'm really interested in what they think about that because that would be part of honestly if they thought that that would be part of the indoctrination of these types of schools it and would. the stripping down of Native American religions. It would. It really would. Know? So yeah, that's that is very interesting. It it seems like the way to handle it would be to create parks and monuments and places for people to go and just learn and know who these who these people were why they were there what Mm -hmm. happened to put them in that position what was the indian act of 1920 like people in canada should know this the same master's degree that i mentioned they estimate that a only a third of Canadian citizens had even heard of residential schools mm. at the time of, of her dissertation. So that was, yeah. you know, 15 years ago. Now it's obviously much different as more and more stuff is coming out about them. But I just think if it were me and I'm not native and I don't have children, <laughs> so I'm not a good person, yeah. but if it were me, I would just want the world to know. And, and the best way to do that is to gre- create places where people can go and learn. Yeah. That, that's, I would love if that were a thing. Yeah. But, All right. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll see if more comes out about this when the final report's out. Yeah. And more, more potential GPR studies too. They, they do want to expand and keep doing this at more school grounds and just see if they can connect people with their, their loved ones from the past. I don't know if we said this or not. 
I was just remembering one of the bullet points we had in the research here. The last one was closed in 1996. I know. It's a crazy statistic, and I was reading about it, and most of them actually closed in the 60s and 70s. What is up with this one? Yeah, there's like one straggler that was open into into the 90s. That's insane. Yeah. I, don't, I think it was one of the more remote ones. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I can't imagine they were taking in new students in the 90s. You know, they're oh, not going no. to families and just like yeah. abducting their students, their kids and saying no. you're going to school now. No, probably not. Because that wasn't allowed. But maybe maybe they were seeing through the students they had or something. I don't really know. Yeah, you know? possibly. Yeah. So. Because wow, like crazy. a kid, a kid in, it would be born in 1978. So in the 70s, mm-hmm. in early 80s, it was still. Yeah. potentially seen as okay to rip children away from their <laughs> families or like a lot of things school. yeah like a lot of things it it's reframed yeah you know the the, yeah. the idea that it's rebranded that's mm-hmm. really what it is it's yeah. rebranded but it's still the same old mm-hmm. you know religious craziness yeah so well so the one thing i don't think we mentioned is that religion stepped back from the schools by the 1960s and control of schools was handed over to the department of indian affairs mm-hmm. and so then the schools by the 60s 70s 80s were being run by people who had a more native focus Mm -hmm. in mind less indoctrination and more like just you know helping native populations but it just didn't really work out that way it just they were they became a little bit more well-meaning and well-intentioned but it had sort of the same effect so yeah yeah yeah. all right well on that note i don't know where to go from there but uh (laughs) yeah it's it's crazy i guess we'll just see Yeah, yeah just i i think what i wanted to do with this podcast is hopefully enlighten people who maybe haven't heard of this one more atrocity towards Native Americans basically that happened a quieter one if you will Mm -hmm. and just you know educate yourself and learn about what happened in your country or the countries around you to the people there and just know about it and well and this is just one more way that archaeology helps illuminate the past and help people speak yeah. That can't speak anymore. Yeah, for so. sure. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. Be sure to check out all the other episodes we got. We got a lot of good news episodes, which are always still pretty re- relevant, I got to say, even though we're talking about news articles. And also, if you're on our mailing list, please share the email that you get. You can share an email. You can forward it to somebody who might like to see news articles or yeah. what podcast we had this week. So. Yep, it's short and sweet and gives yeah. you all kinds of fun information. Yeah, if you're listening to this in real time, I was just going over what's coming out next week. And there's like eight episodes across the whole network coming wow, out between week. Monday and Friday. Big week. Yeah, this is episode nine if you're talking Sunday. So <laughs> anyway, lots of good stuff on the APN and a lot of good, big, fancy changes coming to the APN hopefully in the next six, seven months. So keep your ears out for that. All right. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next week. See ya. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Fro.